Welcome to the John Topovich Show. I'm your host, uh, John Meisberg, and today in the studio we have Kirk McLean. Hey, Kirk. John. How's it going? Hey, welcome to the John Topovich Show. Thanks. Thanks he, for inviting me. Yes. Uh, he works for the, the King County Homelessness Governing Authority in Seattle, and he's here, and it's a very broad term we said, but it should educate us on the homeless epidemic and so kirk thanks for being on the show and uh letting mm -hmm. us know more about uh your experience in this area and how we can try to eradicate this issue thank you john appreciate appreciate you inviting me here yeah so um one of the things that uh i thought was really interesting is a lot of times you hear about politicians that are trying to solve for an issue that they really just don't have any experience with themselves and they have no like skin in the game mm -hmm. but not you you've lived as somebody who's homeless before like tell me about that like how how did the that experience that you had um bring you to where you are today with wanting to work with king county to to eradicate the homeless issue sure john it's a pretty long story uh, my my experience with homelessness started back in 2009 and basically it was really a domestic issue i was married um had a job i was a um an office manager for another uh local uh, uh housing a uh, housing organization um called the delridge neighborhoods development association and worked there for about three years, and uh, they had some cutbacks, and I just ended up being let go. Oh. And so that's really how I uh, lost my income, and eventually lost my lost my place to live. And my my wife ended up leaving me over that. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty bad, pretty bad situation back then. But uh, it's like one of those things that sounds like it could just happen to anyone. It, yeah, it could happen to anyone. Yeah, it was just a downturn in the economy is really yeah. what it was. And so I ended up losing my job. And, you know, me, being a, um, a college graduate back in those days, I had graduated from Western Washington University, you know, several years before that. And I thought to myself, you know, this this couldn't last. You know, I could I could beat this. I'm I'm a think I'm an educated guy. And so I can think my way through this stuff. And as it turns out, I could not. Uh, I just could not find housing. And I looked and looked and slept in alleys in downtown Seattle and slept in slept at up at um, Cal Anderson Park uh, on several occasions, slept in hospital emergency rooms and everywhere. I, I think mean, it said online you slept behind the library building of your college while studying to be a para, to get a paralegal certificate certificate. I, I sure did. Yeah. Wow. When people would ask me. I tell me I stay on campus. <laughs> <laughs> I live. I live in the dorms. On campus, right? I live in the, the <laughs> library dorms. You know, right? So yeah, it, it was pretty uh, intense back then. Now, when you say you couldn't find housing, do you mean you couldn't find housing that was affordable? Because there's probably housing. It's just like it's the cost involved. Is, yeah, no, there in was Seattle. There was, it's so there expensive. Was, there was there was no housing. I mean, I yeah. just could not get housed at all. Right. Wow. And the problem was is there was housing there was housing but that housing was mostly for people who were chronically homeless right mm. and the people that you see out there that they look like they've been out there for a long time and life has beat them up pretty bad 
and they don't have a plan to get off the street. They're, they're just there and they've kind of resolved that this is my life mm-hmm. and I don't know what else to do. Right. And so those are, those people are targeted the most. That's where the bulk of the money is spent on solving the homeless problem is with those chronically homeless people. So guys like me who look normal, basically, I mean, normal, whatever normal looks like, but you know, someone who doesn't look like that, right? There's less compassion. Um, or there's less there, uh, resources there's less, available. Re- yeah, less resources, less money yeah. you know, targeted toward those folks. So uh, that was the reason why I couldn't get housed, you know? And, and so I started doing my own studying, and I figured out, you know, that, you know, back then, this was back in 2000, what, 10, 11, that there was like $20 million a year uh, that was being allocated to Seattle uh, by this um, this act called the McKinney-Vento Act. Two, two congressmen made this act, and it gave a bunch of money to the states for homelessness, but that money went to kids and to chronically homeless individuals, most of it, right? And there's a housing levy. There's all kind of different monies that come to ho- homeless people, but it, but it's all targeted to the chronically homeless and the youth and kids, you know, people who are more vulnerable, right? So if, if you're a single adult and homeless, it's tough for you to get housing. So it wasn't me personally. It wasn't anything personal. <laughs> you know, it, it was just that I was a single person who had a degree and didn't appear to show any signs of mental illness or, you know, psychological whatever, you yeah. know, the, you know, something like that. So since I didn't display those those kinds of things, you fell through the cracks. I fell right through the cracks. Yep. Wow. For 5 years. Wow. Wow. That's such a long time. Yeah. Well, it was what would you say was some of the scariest aspects about being homeless for that long? Is it just like how you don't have like a home base? Like you don't have like a place to like keep your stuff safe and to feel safe or like what, what how did, what, what is it like? I mean, like I'm just speaking out of ignorance. I've never sure. experienced homelessness myself, but like as somebody who's gone through it for that long, like um, it seemed, it seems like it's n- not a great experience. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah. That's an understatement for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I try to, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes in the sense that it's like, oh, so like my stuff isn't safe. Somebody could destroy sure. my home. Somebody can at- attack me, hurt me. I just, or like, I, I can't stay warm. I, I don't know. Like it just, the, the whole, yeah. the whole, co- or like I can't keep my groceries refrigerated like i don't know just the more i think about it the more i'm like oh this would be so inconvenient in so many levels yeah Yeah, and that's really what it is i mean there are so many small inconveniences that you don't pay attention to during a day if you're not homeless yeah that a homeless person really it's just it's right in your face and one of those yeah and and you mentioned pretty much all of them you know there's more but yeah where are you gonna sleep you know that night how are you gonna eat the next day or like Uh, bugs that can like bite you or temperature and yeah i mean i had a guy steal one of my shoes one night Right off my foot. (laughs) What's he going to do with one shoe? I know, right? That's the same question I asked myself when I woke up. I'm like, why? You know? (laughs) But yeah, you 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 sleep in places where you're not safe, and uh, you know things can crawl on you, and um, and 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 people can hurt you, you know, and people can take things from you. And for me, you know, when I slept downtown Seattle, I would I would stand like you know up on up by the freeway and just look down and just see all the lights and say, okay, there's got to be some kind of a safe space for me tonight. And I would walk around and walk around and walk around because I had some, I had some things I wouldn't do. You know, one thing I wouldn't do is I wouldn't find myself woken up 
in front of a building where there was going to be traffic, <laughs> people stepping over me kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't sleep in a doorway, yeah. right? And I wouldn't sleep anywhere where I thought someone could hurt me. Yeah. I've right? seen people do that down in Capitol Hill where they'll just sleep right in the middle of a sidewalk and it's like, I don't know if it's bravery or they're just like so, and maybe they're intoxicated and they don't even know what's happening. But like, I just think like, wow, like, um, that seems kind of scary to be that vulnerable. Yeah, it is kind of scary. I mean, I'm a pretty big guy, so, you know, not just anyone could come up to, come up to me and hurt me, you know, but... Well, I mean, if you're asleep, But though. if you're asleep, right, it's a whole different story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they kind of got you at a disadvantage. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 You might lose a shoe. Yeah. So, you know, continuing on with my saga, you know, I, uh, you know, by the, by the, you know, second or third year out there, you know, I had begun to give up hope. And um, luckily, by that time, my son's mother called me and she asked how I was doing. And I, you know, I was, you know, I just told her the truth. And I got to stay with her for about six months. Right. And uh, and then I went back to being homeless again. You know, I was in all that time. I was looking for work. I actually did find work. I found two temporary jobs during that period. I, I, I worked for Walmart uh, during their Christmas season. And I worked for UPS during their Christmas season. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a runner, right? And I run these packages and I was staying in shape and losing weight and, you know, and all that. I was feeling pretty good. But those went away, you know, and then I was out, out there on the street again, right? And goodness, you know, by the time I got to Highline, uh, I had, um, well, the thing, the one. What's, what's Highline? Highline Community College, sorry. Okay. Yeah, the, the one event that really turned my uh, uh, attention toward the homeless problem, right? Not just my homeless problem, but the problem was that I went to a community meeting in Kent and I was invited to that meeting by, well, I saw a flyer actually. And the flyer was from uh, a group called the Poverty Action Network, right? And they're, they're closely associated with Solid Ground, who I work for. I didn't know that at that time, but I, I saw a flyer and I went to this meeting, right? <clears throat> and when I got there, it was just in this community room in like this, you know, Kent, commons whatever it was some school or whatever and uh two politicians were there from olympia you know two legislators two lawmakers and they actually listened to people you know talk about uh community issues right and when i got there you know that's all i could think about was homelessness and so i said well i've got something i want to say and so i talked about my experience of being homeless and they actually listened to me you know and that was my first experience uh having a direct conversation with a lawmaker, with someone who I knew could change the law. And, and me having a, a legal education, um, you know, I was like, you know, totally going to law school in college. And so I was very interested in that stuff. That blew me away. And I thought, these are the guys who I need to know, yeah. you know, if I want to change something, right? You started to see, like, the possibility of you making an impact on this issue as more realistic exactly yeah. yeah yeah because i thought if i can get into a room with these guys and tell them my story and i you know and, and what and what they told me before the uh, lawmakers got there they said look your, your your personal story is the most powerful thing that you can say to these guys right and i didn't know that but once i started talking about it I just had passion for it because it, it was a passionate situation, you know, for the last couple few years, right? And so yeah. it just kind of came it. out, right? I've been living it, so yeah. it just came out in, in my communication. And uh, they were kind of blown away by it. And so I started volunteering uh, immediately for Poverty Action. And I, I started going to Olympia, uh, talking to lawmakers during, during, uh, during their legislative sessions. And I talk about, 
you know, homeless issues, talk about safety net issues. And I would just give my support and say, you, you guys need to give this money or allocate these funds or pass this, this law or, or whatever, you know, and get this stuff done. And, uh, I became, I wouldn't say popular, but they kept asking me to come back. Yeah. <laughs> and so I came back several times and did it and talked to these guys and actually got to know a couple, a couple of our lawmakers personally. I know two of them. One's a Republican and one's a Democrat <laughs> and they're both great guys. And I, I stay in contact with them regularly by email, but, uh, it was a great, um, a great experience and it taught me a lot. And so at that point, I started trying to learn about how to actually advocate, like formally, right? Do it. And so I took this uh, course that the, um, it was a Washington low income housing, who Washington, well, uh, Washington low income housing, I think association, um, Alliance, sorry, the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. They had a program called the Emerging Advocates Program. And so I took that eight week course and I did pretty well. Um, and I started working with a gentleman by the name of Ben Mishk. And he's actually someone who I helped vote into our, um, our, uh, 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 um, continuum of care committee on the King County Homeless Regional Authority. So good guy, great guy. Awesome guy, uh, taught me everything I know about advocating. And so we would go out to different places and just teach people, you know, just, you know, do a, a media thing and, and, and have folks come to the meeting and, and we show them how to advocate to their lawmakers, you know, and, and in their community. And so I started doing that, did that for about a year and, uh, and two, well, a couple of years, I guess. And then when 2016 rolled around, I was, um, uh, blessed to get awarded the advocate of the year award from the housing alliance oh wow yeah i was like i was blown away and surprised by it you know <laughs> i gave this big old speech in front of all these rich folks that didn't know what to say you know i just kind of said you know just spoke my heart and just said look you guys you know this is a major issue and you know please give us your money you know <laughs> we, yeah. need, we need money <laughs> yeah so and yeah and so that was that and then uh i had been working by that time i found work i got my first job at dsc uh, the downtown emergency uh, downtown emergency services something but they're right down on third and james and they're like ground zero for all the chronically homeless individuals that are you know in the downtown area there and i got my first job there and actually, I was homeless still then, actually, because I remember bringing my suitcase into the into the job with me. Is this it? The yeah, DESC, that's it. Okay. Yeah, Downtown Emergency Services Center. Yeah. And I managed to keep that job for about seven months and until they fired me. <laughs> well, they didn't fire me, but they, they said, well, we, we, uh, we'll give you a chance to resign in lieu of being fired, in lieu of being let go. And I, you know, at, at first I was depressed and I was upset about it, but I realized that I had a lot of bad habits and a lot of uh, uh, just skills erosion and, and all kind of things that had happened to me over those years. And um, it, it just, I, I wasn't able to jump back into the workforce that fast, you know, and so I, I took that as a win instead of a loss because I, I figured, shit, I've been out there for so, excuse me. That's okay. I've been out there for so long, you know, yeah. and I thought, you know, this is, this was a good comeback. And so I did that. And after that, I immediately got hired at Capitol Hill housing okay. as a residential services coordinator. And I kept that job for a lot longer this time, about, about three years, a little over three years. And then they That's let me longer go. than most people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it was a great job. I mean, I really got to know folks and I wasn't working directly with homeless people anymore, but I was still working with people who were in that whole 
at the risk of losing their ho- uh, their housing or people who uh, didn't necessarily have great access to mental health care or didn't have great access to, uh, you know, the health care industry in general, you know, folks who just needed help. And so I, I, I did that um, for three years. I enjoyed it. And after that, I, um, I got hired at Solid Ground as a, um, a what was I? <laughs> well, I'm a case manager there now, but I, I was working directly with the CEA. And I can't even remember my job title. That's so weird. I'm, I, I guess maybe I'm just nervous. But, yeah, I, I basically worked with homeless folks to get them enrolled into the CEA. Okay. Yeah. A diversion and assessment specialist. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So that kind of brings me pretty much up to speed where I am today. Um, uh, I learned about the King County Homeless Regional Authority through an email through, uh, from a coworker who said that she thought I would be a good candidate for a position on that committee. This is where you work now. This is where I work correctly right now. Okay. Yeah. And just to be clear, I volunteer for them. Right. I, I work for Solid Ground as a case manager, but I volunteer with okay. the King County Homeless Regional Authority. OK. OK. So, yeah. So I applied um, and I got I, I, I was picked out of uh, about 50, 52 or 53 people that applied. Uh, I was one of the three that got picked. And um, and it was a, a shocker you know, for me. I didn't really thought I deserve it. I didn't d- didn't think I was really cut out to to to, to work at that level. Uh, I was totally intimidated by you know all these n- names i saw like dow constantine and jenny durkin and, jenny durkin and there she and, is yeah and, and all these other council members and a couple of uh uh uh, uh what uh auburn's governor no um city council no with well, them too mm-hmm. um the mayor of auburn and the mayor of kirkland they're oh wow on, they're on it too yeah all right yeah, and a city councilman from Renton and all that. So there's a bunch of you know pretty heavy hitters in this group. Yeah, and uh, you know I, I quickly found out. It must feel good that to be in the room where it happens, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It, well, it feels it, it's it's. It, I, I don't know if it feels good, <laughs> but it's definitely interesting. Well, I mean, good in the sense that your voice is being hopefully heard, or like there, it, at least it's come. You, you it seems like an opportunity for that. There is for sure. I yeah. mean, there's definitely an, an opportunity to, to be heard and to represent homeless folks, you mm-hmm. know. And I, I have to tell you something that happened to me recently that was that was a, a kind of a, a, another shocker. Uh, I, I was on the uh, on a phone a, a, a Zoom call with the uh, executive director of the uh, People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, and this group is basically the uh, biggest racial equity training group in the country. I mean, they they are most known. I mean, they're they're national, right? They're huge, and they do really really good work. I mean, they have a reputation that you know, if you have one of these uh, racial equity trainings, you are definitely going to see the real racist. <laughs> or the, I mean, they're you know, they just you know they can peel back the layers just and they know how to do it, right? They're really good at it, and they are very intense, very intense sessions. I've been to one in my life, and I you know was shocked just completely amazed at what makes them so intense their level of knowledge as far as how racism works Mm -hmm. and how institutional racism works Mm -hmm. they they, they're just like you know they have an encyclopedic uh knowledge about how this stuff works and how 
it works in ways that most whites just never know. They never consider, never have to consider. And, and, and they bring up whiteness and they bring up white privilege and all these things that white folks simply don't have to think about on a daily basis like other people of color do. Um, and they just, they have great delivery. <laughs> I mean, they got some guys who really can communicate and, and women, people who can communicate very well how this system works and how, how it affects black folks and how it affects white folks and how it affects organizations, right? So they're, they're an effective group for sure. Uh, the executive director, we had a phone call with them. We meaning the, um, the, um, the, uh, uh, my, my group, uh, the lived experience coalition, uh, a, a few of us talked to her on the phone and she said to me, she said, Kirk, uh, you represent homeless people in your area, right? In Seattle to the King County homeless regional authority. That, that's your position there. You are a representative of homeless people. And I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, if I, if you went out, if you went downtown, uh, and you went to say the most populated area downtown where homeless people gather, how many of those folks would know you personally? And I said, zero, <laughs> um, they wouldn't, you know, and, and right when I said that I got what she was trying to say is that if you are representing homeless people to the government, but you have no relationship with them and you have no connection with them, how are you really their voice? How are you their representative? You know, you may be a representative, but you're not going to be very effective if you don't know who they are yeah. and, you, and they don't know who you are. Yeah. And so, uh, especially if you also haven't lived it as well. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, that's and that, that's on top of that. If you haven't lived it either, then you're really ineffective, yeah. you know, as a representative, right? So, uh, that made me do some thinking, right? And actually, the next day after that, we had already scheduled an outreach, a uh, little event that we did down at the uh, courthouse park, that park that's right by the courthouse on Third and James. Okay, we went down there, and um, and I decided, you know, I wasn't just going to just be there, you know, and because I didn't really. To be honest with you, John, you know, since I have been working and I've come out of homelessness and got off the street and and kind of established myself, I can pay my rent now and I have a car and I can pay my car insurance and all that. I just don't feel the same way anymore like I used to. I don't have that that I'm not in survival mode anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at times, I think maybe it, it kind of comes back and creeps into my mind a little bit. But most most of most of the time, yeah. I'm just like you. I'm just a regular guy doing my job, making money, trying to support myself. You know, I mean, not being in survival mode, I think, is a good thing, though. Like, you don't want to live in fight or flight mode. I think it's really unhealthy for your uh I, th I think you can get adrenal fatigue from that. <laughs> right. It's just like always feeling like. Like, yeah. wor worried is not healthy. No, it, it, it's bad for your health. Yeah. In general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't experience that any longer. Um, but I, I think I've kind of gone too far to where even though I'm, believe it or not, I'm working in this field. And it's like, you know, I b before I became a case manager, because now I case manage people who are formerly homeless, who have a place to stay and they just need support services. Right. So the building I work in is called a permanent supportive housing building. Right. And so people live there. They most of them survive on SSI benefits or maybe maybe some other kind of retirement benefits. But they're stable, basically stable. Right. But before that, I was working with people who were literally homeless. Right. And I remember there was one time, actually, and, and this is probably important to, to say, because uh, when I first started that job, as an assessment and diversion specialist for solid ground, uh, working with the CEA, uh, 
people would come into my office and they were homeless and they would tell me their story. And I would literally begin to remember things that I experienced that were similar to that. Right. And I, and I heard that over and over and over. Someone would be, would be telling my story. Right. Uh, not exactly, but something similar, you know, and it would bring back a trauma for me. Right. And so at one point I remember this woman, she told me, uh, all this tragic stuff that happened to her. And then she mentioned that her, 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 her young daughter was being sexually abused by her boyfriend and her young daughter was like four. Oh my right? God. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. <laughs> and I, 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 I literally had to, to, you know, finish that, that, uh, assessment. And I drove myself to, to HQ to headquarters, which is, you know, in Wallingford and my, and my office was at North Seattle college. And I drove myself there and I talked to my supervisor. And I said, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I cannot handle this anymore. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty overwhelming emotionally to deal with that. It, it was very overwhelming emotionally. And I didn't think I could go on, but my supervisor told me to take a couple of days off, uh, get some rest, regroup and see what you want to do. And so that's what I did. I went home and I just slept and just cried and, and thought about, okay, well, how do I do self-care? I mean, cause I know I've got to start doing it now if I'm going to survive in this position. So I, I started just, you know, preparing when people came into the office, I would meditate for a couple of minutes and just kind of separate myself from, I guess, my feelings sort of, I mean, that's the best way I can explain it. I don't really know what I did, but I know that I was able to, um, to kind of be more objective. Like compartmentalize right? them. Yeah. Just compartmentalize stuff and just kind of keep it over there. And, and, and you know, the, but I hear the same stories. I mean, it'd be the same thing. They, people, people would tell my story again, but because I made a conscious effort to car to compartmentalize those things, they didn't affect me and they didn't affect how I did my job. And so, you know, that was kind of a small victory for me. So yeah, I, I, I thought that was something that, um, that, you know, is, is kind of a watershed was a watershed event in, in my career with working with homeless people. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So that's quite some story of how you've gone from, uh, living as a homeless person to all the way to a, a, somewhat of a partnership with the mayor of the city. <laughs> That's pretty great. You know, like it's, it's, I mean, it's amazing how far you've come. Um, um, I think, I think there's a lot of questions that I still have. And I think a lot of viewers out there might have about homelessness in general that I mm -hmm. thought that maybe we could touch on. Sure. Um, one of the things, well, I mean, I mean, just how about just for starters, like, given all of the experience that you've had in your life so far, what's like one of the biggest mi misconceptions that you think the average person has about being homeless that you would like to like address or or put out there? Oh, sure. The, the number one biggest misconception that most people have about homeless people is that they think they are choosing to live that life. Mm hmm. Yes, I hear that a lot from Republicans. <laughs> yeah, they're making they're making those choices on purpose. Yeah, to keep them out there. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard I've heard like, oh, they they just don't want to work, or they just want to to do drugs and live for live for free, not have to worry about working. And and I think what you're saying is like the majority of people who end up being homeless, like it was, you know, there's 
like a, a snowball effect of like mm-hmm. things that build up that lead to um, this unfortunate situation that then becomes very difficult to get out of get out of right yeah that's exactly what it is i mean that's uh, people, that's exactly what happened to you yeah right so, and I, I can say that from experience it, yeah. it wasn't anything that i did necessarily to lose my job yeah you know, i didn't do anything i was a great employee i think you know uh it just was about money yeah. you know and so that's that's how it happened to me now i know this i will i will tell you this john i you know during that five-year period when i was out there uh i well two things number one i kept a journal and number two i paid attention to the people that I spoke with. I, I, I really did because I was, uh, I didn't really understand how bad the homeless problem in Seattle was in King County. I, I didn't know how bad it was until you were out, actually out there at night <laughs> with no place to go. And then you see how many people are like you out there. Um, it's like there, it's easier for homeless people to blend in during the day. You're saying like you don't notice it as much and that at night it becomes more apparent. Yeah, because all the working folks are gone home. Yeah. You know, and so that's pretty much all who's left. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's the same thing I've noticed about taking public transit really late at night is you start to see a, a drastic difference mm-hmm. between like, it's like all people during the day. It's like people heading to work, heading back from work. And at night, yeah. it's like a totally different situation. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. So, you know, you, you see that difference, right? And, uh, you know, I used to have conversations with in, intentional conversations with people just to see what their story was, just mm-hmm. to see what what happened, you know, how they get out there. Now, it, it, it's kind of dicey to do that because you don't want to get into someone's personal information yeah. or their their story unless. But, but I'll tell you this. Most homeless people, they want to tell a story. They want yeah. to people to know, yeah. you know, what happened, you know, yeah. um, because most is tragic and, and and a lot of the time it's just not their fault you know yeah. and, and they want people to know that because they get judged constantly by people you know about how people look at them and just by their and, situation yeah not, just, and not just, by the circumstances that led to it well no, no one sees that yeah you know, they just see where they are today yeah. right, that moment and so they you get these looks from people and uh it, it it's horrible I mean, I, I can tell you one really bad story that, that one thing that's happened to me that was it was by far the most uh, intense and uh, terrible situation in a, a, or event that happened to me while I was homeless. And it's not going to be anything crazy, but just listen to this. Okay. okay. I was, it. I was in downtown Seattle one, one nice sunny day. Uh, this was back when George Bush was in office, right? And I had to use the bathroom, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I'd been around long enough to know, you know, you don't go to the bathroom in the library because there's too many homeless people in there already and the place is messed up and it stinks and, and it's just not, you, you learn where to go, right? And so the, the, um, the big buildings and, you know, the ones that have great, nice, brand new, you know, clean bathrooms, that's where you go, right? Well, that didn't work out for me that day. I got kicked out by three or four different guards, you know, security guards and like, get out of here. We know what you're doing. You know, you can't come in. And, you know, and that's a whole nother story in and of itself. <laughs> right. But just by how I looked, they knew, you know, but they didn't really know. But anyway, so I found myself uh, going. I-, I went to the King County Administration Building. It's the building that's right across the street from the jail on Third Avenue. Right. And I was in the bathroom in there and I was taking what they call a bird bath. Right. I was filthy and stinky and had to use the bathroom. And so I went in there, used the bathroom. And I went back to the sink and I started cleaning up, washing myself. Right. And this white guy walks in 
Uh, he had on like a nice, nice tie and nice shirt, you know, nice slacks. I knew he was some kind of a professional that worked there. You could just tell him nice haircut and just a nice clean cut guy. Yeah. And, um, and I was, you know, washing myself. I, w- I wasn't naked or anything. I-, I think I may have had my shirt off or something, but this guy gave me a look that I would never forget. Yeah. And like, I'm going to get like a little dis- emotional like here. Like disdain. It was, it, it was worse than disdain. It was oh. something like, you are a piece of trash. Wow. You are just nothing. You're a piece of trash. And he looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing in here? You know, this is for working people. You bum, get out of here. He, he didn't really go that far, but he did ask me, what are you doing in here? This, is, th- th- this place is for working people, right? Yeah. And the way he looked at me when he said that, I just... I just cringed. I mean, it, it hurt so yeah. bad, right? And I don't even know why. Because I'm a tough guy. I got, I had developed some kind of a thick skin. I thought, you know. But when that guy told me that, I just, I just, I, I was just hurt, hurt, hurt. And so when I went out, and this is just, it went on all day. But the first thing I did when I got out of that building, I was in, in, in a rage, you know. And, and I just, I walked to the corner. Ah, where was I at? I walked. Out of the building and and I went around the corner and I just stopped and I said I fucking hate George Bush. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> I'm like this is not my fault. This, and I, I was yelling like I had lost it. I completely lost my nuts. Right, yeah. just completely. And I just yelled out I hate George Bush. This is not my fault. I've got a college degree. You know this is not my fault. <laughs> And then I just can continue walking on down to wherever I was going. And but it that, sounds like you're just trying to find a way to like clean up. I mean, what's this guy's problem, man? He's just, yeah, people it, are just like so disconnected from other people's like struggle. Yeah, that, that guy was completely disconnected, and yeah. I think that he had more than just disconnection. He had a, a malice, you know, for people like that. Obviously, because I had never been looked at like that by anybody in my life. Yeah. Um. There's a there's a meme, there's a meme that's really popular on the internet from this show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, hmm. and they're trying to tell this guy to just go get a job, and he's unemployed. And he says, "Just get a job. Why don't I just strap on my job helmet and squeeze down <laughs> into a job cannon, fire off into job land where jobs grow on jobbies." <laughs> and I think yeah. it's like I don't know. I think it feels like a lot of people are just trying to do their best and we mm. need to have more compassion for other people who are struggling especially during covid right now like exactly. this year has been yeah. even worse right like so many people i know have been laid off so many companies mm. are not hiring anymore it's it's getting bad and when you couple that with automation and artificial intelligence replacing everyone's jobs like yeah we just need to have more compassion for other people who are struggling who don't have enough money to pay their bills that don't have maybe they're living in their car on the street like just like keep that in mind that people are struggling and it's like not everyone has it as good as good as you but speaking of covid what has it been like in your line of work working helping the homeless during COVID. Is that more of a challenge? You guys have to be more careful or? Yes, we do. And as a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with a coworker of mine yesterday who told me something I did not know about, uh, the uh the leadership of solid ground and how we've responded to to uh the situation where i work i work in a a a, a, in a space where there are about five or six big apartment buildings right and all these folks are families and single adults who have been formerly homeless um most of them survive on ssi uh most of them have uh, some 
well, I say, yeah, I say most of them probably have one to one degree or another, some mental health challenges and, uh, and some medical, other medical challenges, you know, those kind of things. And so, uh, I was talking to my coworker and she told me that we have a policy that if we find out that one of our employee or I'm sorry, one of our tenants uh, has COVID is a test positive that they aren't allowed to tell us who it is because of a HIPAA loss. And uh, that seems like a problem though. It is a problem because it, it, it well, you, you got confidentiality, but you've also got the risk of spread. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I feel like the the health concern trumps the confidentiality. If it's going to end up potentially killing someone, right? Yeah. Well, that's the argument, and, and we're trying to get that changed. But I was very surprised about that, you know, because if if someone that I work, you know, a client of mine that I work with, if that person is is, is uh, test positive for COVID, and I don't know, yeah, you know, or the other people in his you know circles or you know his you know his, his environment don't know then you know and, and plus you know it, it just seems like the way it is with um and i'm going to use this word carefully but these types of individuals they don't seem to in general don't seem to care as much mm-hmm. they've got other things on their mind than you know than us regular folks i guess yeah. i mean I, I hate to say those words like that but you know they just they have other things they're thinking more about. pressing issues yeah on the bottom of uh, maslow's hierarchy exactly they're yeah. still living in survival mode some of them yeah. most of them are yeah and so COVID 19 you know if they don't know anyone who died and you know no one that they have seen died and all they really hear are statistics about who's died then it's not really real for them mm-hmm. you know so a lot of the people that i work with they don't mask up you know, and and we have to tell them, can you wear your mask, please? And they'll put it on for that moment. But when they leave, they they take it off, you know. And, and so the the risk of COVID-19 spreading exponentially is there, because if we don't know that they have it or test positive, they can spread it easily. You yeah. Know? And, and, and so. It's like, how do you balance that with, with HIPAA laws and confidentiality stuff, right? And, the, and I, I mentioned to my coworker, I said, well, why don't we just give them all ROIs, you know, releases of information so that they can tell us, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or someone can tell us. Yeah. And she said, that's brilliant. I'll do that. You know, and I thought, okay, fine. But it was just a kind of a thought I had. But it's really the only way that. Because there's obviously some kind of administrative something going on, you know, that, you know, that, you know, that the folks who are breathing air, I don't breathe for solid ground, that they are are, are try, having to abide by that simply it just doesn't it, it's not going to work for this situation. Yeah. You know, so they have to do something about it. So maybe the ROI is the answer. Yeah, I hope they they um, in, implement that pretty soon. It seems kind of ridiculous that uh, yeah. people's health isn't being prioritized over some kind of legal thing Rule. that's set up. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, so something that I should mention is that um, Kirk and I, we actually had an interview uh, back a couple months ago, and it was totally random. This is how I met Kirk, is I was over at CHOP and um, saw he had um, like a booth over there. I can show a picture of it. Let's see. Here he is right here. This is the Lived Experience Coalition. 
And I just happened to come across this and uh, met him and spoke to him about what was going on. And uh, we got into talking a lot about um, some just a lot of topics around homelessness that I was just not familiar with. Uh, So one of the things that he brought up to me was uh, the difference between low-income housing and affordable housing. He said to me that we need um, more... Did you say you meant we need more low-income housing and not affordable housing, correct? I was wondering, could could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, The difference between low-income housing and affordable housing is how they measure... uh, uh, how they measure the person's income who can afford that housing. Okay. So with affordable housing, uh, it, it comes in these chunks. You've got people who make uh, 30% of the area median income. Some people who make or their income is uh, 40 or 50 or 60%. Okay. Uh-huh. All those different percentages, that's what makes up the group. Of, of, of units that are called affordable housing. Okay. Right. People who make those, you know, you know between 30 and 60% of the area median income, uh, those are the folks who they make that housing for. Now, for low income housing, that housing is for people whose income goes down to zero. Okay. Right. And so, it, it, including people that weren't, aren't working at all. That's true. Right. Yeah. So, it's really about the subsidy that, you know, that's applied to that unit. So, there's, there's, Affordable housing, quote unquote, affordable housing, the term in Seattle, but there's Mm. less low income housing. And so what you advocate for is we need to have more low income housing for people that like there's not enough low income housing for people. And there's I think people conflate the term affordable housing with low income housing, think it's the same thing. They're like, oh, what's the problem? We have affordable housing. It's like Mm. the people who a lot of people can't qualify for affordable housing is what you're saying. Right. And the reason for that is because it's based on the area median income. Uh Now, just like I terribly explained to you at the chop, (laughs) trying to explain the AMI to you that day, I didn't do a very good job. But the area median income for Seattle and King or for for Seattle is about one hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. Right now, you compare that to a place like, say, Cincinnati, um, where their a- a- AMI is somewhere probably around sixty thousand or fifty thousand. I was right? reading in Dallas; it's like forty-five. Yeah, right, right. So you know, that's, so that makes a difference. And the reason why it's that high here is because of places like Amazon and Boeing and all these different, you know, tech organizations where they, you know, where these young kids get paid, you know. A gazillion amount, you know, so yeah. much money yeah. that it just skews that AMI way, way up. Yeah. Right. And so for us, it's just inflated. And yeah. so, and that's what affordable housing prices are based on. You know, they're based on that area median income. So, uh, you know, but but you know, uh, public housing or what the, what is called um, you know low income housing, that's really public housing. Okay. That's really what it is. It's like fully subsidized by the government gotcha. housing for people, you know, and if you can afford more, you pay more, but it's, you know, it's based on that zero income mm-hmm. metric, right? It's like a sliding scale with how much you pay. Yeah, it okay. is. It's like, uh, for example, uh, the Seattle housing authority, right? They, they, they do public housing, right? And if you make no money, uh, then you pay nothing for rent, nothing. Right. If you I mean, of course, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, but I assume that they have programs for people who are completely 
broke and don't have any money, but they have programs to probably help you, you know, get your resume fixed up and, mm-hmm. and try and help you to become employable or get training or, you know, some kind of skills training. That kind of thing, I, I believe, is going on with that program. But, you know, obviously the list, you know, to, you know, the, the wait list to get into a, uh, what, what they call a Section 8 voucher is years. I mean, I tell people, yeah, you can apply now, but basically it's going to be your grandkids that get housed. Yeah. So then <laughs> yeah. it's like, what do you do in the meantime? Right. Yeah. So is this something that the King County uh, Homelessness Regional Authority is trying to address is to create more low-income housing in Seattle for people to, and maybe to kind of expedite the process to get people into them? Is that, like, the the thought process of, like, what you guys are trying to do? Or, like, how do you how do you solve for this? Right. Because you, to- you told me, I mean, I asked you this question at CHOP. I said, you know, what can we do to eradicate the homeless problem? And you're like, build more housing, duh. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, but how, how are we going to do that? Um, so I guess the question is, how are we going to do that? Who's going to pay for it, right? right. Where's it going to go? Right. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, Seattle has the money to do it. Yes. We don't have the political will yet to do it, uh-huh. but we do have the money to do it. Yeah. Now, from what I know and what I've experienced over the years is that Seattle is like kind of a a paradise. I mean, when you look at other places around the country, uh, a lot of people want to live in Seattle, mm-hmm. right? And, and that means tourism. It means uh, cleanliness. It means you know, citywide, that kind of thing. It means, you know, aesthetics, right? And it means money right and and so what's going on in seattle is that the politicians here this is just my opinion here but the politicians here to me have been co-opted by the real estate industry um interesting the people who are building these high rises right and the people i mean look at look at south lake union yeah i mean that place has become a city of its own down there Uh i mean i don't think i i call it amazon town (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah. Right? It's just, but the Amazon folks are just down there. Yeah. Just, well, now just, it's Facebook too, apparently. But Amazon is like a very they make a big, they make up a big uh, portion of that area for sure. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Now think about if I mean that whole area could could be something completely different. It could be a community for homeless people. Mm-hmm. It could be a community for you know low to very very low income people. Yeah, and they could have done built the same way. Yeah. You know, but they're not going to spend that kind of money on people who aren't paying taxes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? from their perspective, just to play devil's advocate is like, oh, these companies, they're job creators that employ people that then pay rent and mortgages and spend money in local business. And it's this whole system that they're trying to, like, prop up. And then maybe mm-hmm. from their perspective, they're like, what do we get out of of taking care of the homeless people? They, It's like it almost comes off like they don't feel like they're incentivized to do anything. I mean, that's yeah. just me speaking out of ignorance. No, I don't that's, know. that's completely is that accurate? accurate. That is completely accurate. So we need to make, so like, how can we make the people in the city feel like there is incentive to care about homeless people and take care of them? Like, where does that incentive come from? I think that's like the, the question that like people are trying to solve for, right? Sure. Make people more compassionate. I've, I've actually thought about like, I think in America, like, people just have these, like, individual mentalities where they're just so focused on their mm-hmm. own lives and, and looking out for themselves and maybe their family. But, like, you see in, like, other countries, the, the culture, there's, like, a collectivist culture where everyone cares about each other and they're all, they all have this mentality that we're all in this together. And I think it's almost like 
America has this toxic culture where like people are they care too much about themselves and not enough about other people and I think maybe that's the root of like how we get this to change is like trying to change that mm. that um that culture. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. But do you know um, what I mean? I do know what you mean. I've, I've I experienced this visiting Japan. I was like, wow, like everyone, you could just see how people behave. It, people mm -hmm. seem to care more about other people's experiences and not their own. Sure. Well, not my, just their own. My, my girlfriend is Romanian, right? And full 100% Romanian. And when she first came here about 20 years ago, uh, she was blown away by advertising and by, you know, completely green manicured yards in, in the winter, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, and, uh, and, and cul-de-sacs and all these things yeah. where it, it was just about individualism. She could just see it mm -hmm. in the, the TV and the commercials and uh, her uh, then husband's friends. They were all obsessed with money and possessions and c consumerism. You know, it was just like, she could see it from a, a perspective that I never could, that you probably never could, because we've lived here our whole life. We've been acclimated to it and just kind of completely co-opted into it. Right. But I can understand it because you're being told by someone who has not been in that system, has not grew up and was born in that system. So she can see just how stark it is here, how, how intense the individualism is in America in general, you know, in major cities. And Seattle is no different. I mean, we've got so much money here. But, uh, I, I, you know, I think one way to to change that would be to give the homeless person a human face. You know, give them yeah. a life. Give them an experience that other people can relate to. Yeah. And not just a stereotype and not just a misinformation that is spread about homeless people. Yeah. So. Well, having people that have experienced homelessness to be on this uh king county homelessness regional authority like yourself i think is part of giving it a face it is yes it is it is yeah so that's that's good but there's more that can be done obviously um i'm trying to harness i'm trying to like summon like arguments that i've heard from other people mainly conservative people about why they don't support housing the homeless which i think like when you say that on a surface level it just sounds crazy to me but like um i think the one of the main arguments that i've heard and this is unique to seattle because i live mm -hmm. here i've heard people say that they support housing the homeless but they don't trust our local government to do it effectively or to spend their tax dollars the way they they say they're going to spend it and so i guess i know people that have lived here a lot longer than i have i've only been here five years but a lot longer than i have and i guess they just have little faith that mm -hmm. in the local government spending the money uh in a way that they say they're going to spend it and so they their their attitude toward taxes is just like i don't want to pay any new taxes because i don't trust the government to do right. what they say they're going to do with it right. so i think that's a problem that we have to overcome as well like how do you gain back the the, the citizens of the city's trust to to solve these problems with their tax dollars you know yeah that that whole uh regressive tax thing in in, in washington has been on it's just been a major issue for years, you know, and, and, and Seattleites and Washingtonians simply don't want to have. I mean, I, from what I hear, we're the most regressive, one of the most regressive tax structures in the country here in Seattle. And yeah, it, it, it's and, and when you have a, a system, right, you know, the 
whole homeless system. I don't know if you if I've told you, but you know the the way this whole thing started, the whole homeless you know system in Seattle started with a an edict from George Bush to all of the major cities in the United States, and he said, "Look, everyone." has to do a 10-year plan mm -hmm. to end homelessness. Mm -hmm. and this was an actual thing he did. It, it may have been, I'm not, not an edict, but it may have been some kind of whatever, but it was a law or, or, or something that got passed. And so, you know, Seattle, along with L.A. and Chicago and all the big cities, uh, they had their 10-year plan, and we had ours. And by the time our 10-year plan was done, there was more homeless people <laughs> than it was when the 10-year plan was instituted, right? <laughs> and so... What happened? Well, yeah, that's the question. You what can, what happened? I mean, Nothing happened. I mean, but my point, though, it kind of goes to your, your comment about people not really trusting local government to spend that money the way it should be spent. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and it's still happening. I mean, we've got this is the third iteration of that 10 year plan. You know, it just didn't work. It was like 20 years ago, you know, and. We still have a major homeless problem. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the issues that, that the uh, Lived Experience Coalition and myself uh, want to get uh, across to, you know, the, you know, the mayors and the governors on this uh, committee is that, look, you guys, you know, you, you, you had a shot at this 10, 15 years ago. And we're back at the same starting point as we were before. Yeah. And all that money that got spent. You know what happened you know i mean it must feel kind of disheartening for you and you might must have some cognitive dissonance regarding the situation in the sense that like on one hand you've been asked to partner with the mayor and city council uh for different areas and it's a great experience uh, uh you have hope that it will lead to something productive but then simultaneously you think about how they have had the opportunity to address this situation for a very long time, and you're mm -hmm. like, what, what do you have to show for it? Right. And it's like, I don't know, that must be a kind of depressing to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is depressing to think about that. Yeah. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you have to give up, uh, and it doesn't mean that we don't still have the potential yeah. to do it. I admire your perseverance to keep trying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not going to give up. You know, there's, there's, I mean, not while there's still homeless folks out there. It's like you look into their face and it's like, how can I give up? You know, how, how, how can I let just the difficulty of the situation just overwhelm me? You know? So, like, what do you think is going to make the difference, though, between just talking about it and execution and uh, making a dent in this problem? Is it going to be just more pressure on mayors and city council to treat homelessness as a priority? Like, what, what is going to, what do you think from your perspective is going to be the difference between over the last 15 years and what could yeah. happen in the next year? Yeah, that's, that's a really tough question because, uh, you know, in my mind, I think because of the George Floyd environment and the Black Lives Matter movement, we're kind of in a special situation here i guess what do you mean by special well i mean that there are questions being asked that weren't being asked before uh, about racial equity and mm. about poverty and about police brutality yeah. and violence and that, that kind of thing which is a good thing it's a great thing it's yeah. a really great thing um the problem is that you know these questions are systemic questions they're system questions you know system change questions and uh to be honest with you, John, I just don't believe that the system 
can reverse itself. I mean, you you know, when I think just about because you're aware of it, doesn't mean it's going to fix it overnight. No, I, but 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 what? But the things that have have to happen to fix it are just just system change things. Uh-huh. I mean, and when I when I say system change, I mean whole departments in King County have to stop doing things the way they're doing it now and completely do a 180. Do you have an example you know? of like what you mean by that? Like an example of a, a system that would have to 180? Yeah, I, I can give you an example. Like, for example, um, these, uh, um, these encampments, right? The encampments, what they do now is, and of course, you know, Encamp- there's... What do you mean encampments? I'm sorry, the homeless encampments. Okay. Right? Where you've got a, a, a bunch of folks that are living in a park somewhere, right? Okay. And it's sanctioned by the city government. And that's where they live. They've got porta potties there. They've got. Is this uh, like Cal Anderson Park down in Capitol Hill now? Kind of. Well, it, that's yeah. I mean, or, that's that's a close proximity of what it is. But yeah. they're all around the city. Yeah. I mean, just do a Google search and you know look up homeless encampment, and there's you know seven or eight of them, right? Mm-hmm. So they're there, and you know w- what's going on is that they have a problem, and the problem is that you know the police come into these places and clean them out, right? And that's what their job is, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the police, they're city, uh, city and, and county employees of the mayor, right? So you've got the mayor who says, okay, it's okay to have these encampments, but it's also okay to have the police come and just clean them out. And where are these folks going to go, right? And so the, the idea was that, well, if we're going to go do these, clean, sweep these encampments, they call them sweeps, right? Um, they're going to also provide uh, um, counselors and, and social workers and yeah. case managers like myself to come there with them, with the police, and offer these folks services. Mm. The problem is that the folks who are living in encampments, they're not there because they could have a place, <laughs> right? And so really, when the, when, this, when the social service people come in, they don't really do anything for them. I mean, they put them on a list, you know, or they tell them to go talk to me about getting enrolled into the CEA and waiting six months for a home, you know, or, or, or some kind of place to live. So it's not a solution. So when I say system change, that is what I'm talking about, where you have to have a, a system that actually responds to something like a sweep, where it actually responds effectively and actually gets people off the street. And the only way that can happen is, number one, you've got to have the political will to build more housing. And number two, you have to have systems in place that can transition people from the street to housing and also provide services, mental health services or medical services for them so they can survive once they get housed. Mm-hmm. And So how do we affect those two dials? How do we affect political will? How do we affect these systems? It's a simple allocation of money. That's all it is, a simple allocation of money. We've got the structure there. I mean, you've got the human services division. Uh, you've got... You're saying they're under, they're under finance. They need more money to do what they want to do. More, yeah. More tax dollars. They need... Well, you know, they probably don't need the tax dollars. They just need to allocate it to to more targeted departments and yeah. more targeted places and people. Is this part of what Black Lives Matter was talking about, though, is the idea of potentially of reallocating some of the funding from mm. the Seattle Police Department to perhaps redirect a portion of their funding towards a program that helps homeless people so then maybe the police don't have to handle them and, and train professionals who deal with homeless can handle them instead and maybe have more successful outcomes? Yeah, right. When you talk about reallocating funds from the police to social services, 
that's just not like one tiny department where you've got some psychologist who goes along with the police and, you know, and, and de-escalates uh, the situation so the police don't have to pull their guns out. Yeah, it's right? more than that. It's more than that. I mean, yeah. when you allocate money to like a, a place like the Department of of, uh, of, of Human Services, I think it's a, a, a HSS or, you know, one of the social service departments within the King County City of Seattle, that money goes to the whole department, Right. And so those are also departments that 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 um, supply housing and they uh, help people who to, to transition from homelessness to housing. I mean, the city is involved in this stuff, but they're just not really getting the money to do it. And so you've got two big areas. You've got building housing and then you have allocating funds to help people get to that housing success and stay there successfully. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. But it's just a, a, about reallocating money. Yeah. And then perhaps getting rehabilitated to the point where they don't even need it anymore. Right? Exactly. So this is like a whole yeah. system. An end to, there needs to be like an end-to-end system that brings that person back into a functioning member of society. Sure. Yeah. Now, the problem with that, I just noticed, because I've been in my new position as a case manager for about a month and a half now. Okay. And, what I've, and when I got this position, I was under the impression that... I was like this self-imposed, you know, thing that I, you know, I just, you know, thought I'm going to go in there and my main objective is to help these folks get independent of the system to get out so someone else can come in, you know. Um, but what I found out is that a lot of the people that I work with, they aren't going anywhere. I mean, they they have, you know, they're in their 60s, you know, some of them, and they so you're are... saying they don't have a trajectory to leave the temporary housing. It's become it, more it, permanent. Well, it is permanent housing, but it, yeah, but there, but, but there's not that much permanent supportive housing out there, mm-hmm. though. Uh, th- there's more shelters, and there's more affordable housing, so to speak, and there are more places that transition you um, from homeless, from homelessness to housing, and that transition was called transitional housing. But the idea of it behind it is that it's supposed to transition you for a permanent, a permanent housing yeah. that, that, that you get, not that they give you, that you can get it. Go out and, and market rate, you know, right. kind of stuff. Right. But and it I doesn't work that there's way. There's probably more public support for that because I think one of the main probably one of the main pushbacks towards all of this is like you hear you have all the people out there that are paying their rent and their mortgage and they're like, it would only it's like it's not fair it's not fair that other people mm. aren't paying what i'm having to pay it's like you probably have that attitude that you're constantly dealing with so i can i can imagine that transitional housing where somebody is is being given you know uh assistance to help get them back to a place where they can participate like the rest of the society is mm. like that's more of a popular idea but then if you get into i don't know doing letting somebody have I don't know, subsidizing them permanently, you think that's more controversial? Of course it is, because yeah. it's more money, you know? Yeah. But, the but, thing- it's, like, but it's like a it's like a um, a situation where people probably develop this attitude of like, it's not fair because I have to I have to spend all this money for my place and they don't kind of thing. Is do you know what I mean? Or yeah, is that not I, a- no, I do. I, I understand. And just let me just say this, John. You know, I, I heard once that uh you know, the measure of a country is how they treat their poorest people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so you have to have some kind of an ethical, moral, or, you know, some kind of a societal more that says we could only do as well as the worst of mm-hmm. us, you know, economically yeah. speaking. Yeah. So these folks, you know, 
it, it's a choice that we make, you know, as, as a society, as a village, right? Do we help the most vulnerable among us or do we only pay attention to our own, our own needs? Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's pretty simple. So you're saying there are some people out there that the idea of, of transitioning them back into um, being employed and paying for rent or a mortgage on their own is realistic. And then there's some people out there where it's not realistic. And then right. for those people, you're saying, what about them? Like, do we just say to hell with them and let them live on the street and figure it out? Or it's like, do we as a society say that we should be looking out for them too? Right. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, it is. And it's really unique here in Seattle because, you know, number one, you know, we there, uh, Seattle has this reputation. If, if you talk to enough homeless people, you'll inevitably run by someone who says, Man, I heard they had a lot of social services programs up here and, and Seattle was really, you know, has just this, this, you know, amazing network of social services. And we actually do. We have an amazing network, but they're all siloed. I mean, they're all doing their own thing. And that's why the King County Homeless Regional Authority was created, was to kind of get rid of those silos and have one umbrella of individuals making decisions for everyone so that each different organization isn't making their own thing and, and making their own requirements to be housed and, yeah. and all this stuff. So hopefully it can function better, more effectively mm. with there being like an overarching umbrella group that kind of is overseeing it all Yeah, that you're getting to participate in. Yeah. The only problem is, though, is that places like uh, Kent and Auburn, they have their own way of doing things. And, you know, and, and what I mean by that is they, uh, you know, you've got you know, it really comes down on political lines, really. You've got a, a lot of the suburbs, uh, they're more, they, they lean more Republican in their policies and how they, in their philosophies as far as, you know, how they view homelessness and how they view poor yeah. people. So when you guys all come so, together, is the hope that you guys balance each other out? Or, I mean, or, or maybe that's just people may not see it that way they may see it as they're balancing us in a or they're un they're making us unbalanced <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah yeah it's kind of subjective it's it's very subjective uh i mean you know when you look at you know what solutions are the right ones right um and they're just are different ideas you know and, and, and like i said they really do land a, a, around political lines they just just land down there and that's where they stay and so what i'm finding as one of the you know lived experience members is that uh there is just simply a different perspective on this thing than I have, you know, and, and I don't know where the middle ground is. We haven't been around long enough to get to a middle point to where we're all working kind of mostly for the same goal. Um, but at, at this point, you know, the lived experience coalition who I represent uh, to the King County Homeless Regional Authority, along with homeless folks, this is a fight. For, you know, it's really a fight. And, and, and that's how they positioned me and the two other lived experience people. And, you know, in, in, in that group is we, you got to fight because, number one, they're not going to change their mind unless you make them. And if they don't change their mind, then nothing's going to change because them not changing their mind represents what they have been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah. Right. And so if they're going to keep doing that, there's nothing. Gonna, nothing is going to change. And. Uh, and, and that all, you know, the, 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 the details of that really comes down in our view from our perspective is, you know, systemic racism and white supremacy and, uh, you know, lack of using 
a racial equity lens when you're making policy, when you're trying to put together policy. What are we going to do, right? What, what is policy? Policy is a decision to do something, right? And then apply it to the community, to what we, you know, what, what the problem is. And if they're using old methods that aren't that didn't work before, then you know we've got to fight to make them try and do something different. And they, they don't have the incentive. And at so this that's point. why you told me that you're trying to have a racial equity training group come to. Um, where you are to to train everyone to think more that way, correct? Is that what you're trying to have happen? Initially, that's what we wanted to do, yes. I mean, that's the so general what you, goal. What, what do mean, you mean initially? So what happened? Well, that changed. Um, we we decided, well, you know, kind of, well, when we made, when I made the motion a couple of months ago, um, we had the, we thought that that'd be a great idea. But uh, over time, we kind of realized that uh, we are probably not going to change their mind with one training, and it probably is not going to have the effect that we would want it to have. Uh-huh. We kind of just decided that on our own. Um, so, baby, you think it's not worth doing it then? We're gonna. Do, we're still gonna have an event, uh-huh. but it's not gonna be a training. It's going to be like I said earlier. It's going to be. A uh, a session where myself and the two other lived experience members um, relate what we think is racism going on in our group toward us. Okay. Right in this group, and so it's going to be a public meeting, um, and so uh, you know, th- and there's going to be the availability of public comment if you want, if anyone wants. So we thought uh, that would be a, a, a most, the most effective use of our time and, 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 and of that meeting space. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. You know, this is reminding me of the, the recent uh, presidential debate uh, where um, I think, I don't know if you watched it, but Trump, was, Trump was saying that, uh, I don't know if we can pull up a headline, I think Trump was saying that racial sensitivity training was racist. I don't know if... I think he was saying that, like, the things they were teaching people were racist. He was saying racist against white people. But, like, I don't know. It's crazy to me what he was saying. But, like, I think... What it sounds to to me is, like, in order for you to make progress in this committee, people first need to be self-aware of how they're treating each other. And it's like, how do you go about doing that? Do you think a training group would, some kind of training would help people become self-aware? But it sounds like uh, you don't have a lot of faith in that. Well, I don't, but only because, you know, what I've been told um, by some of the more uh, senior leaders in the uh, lived experience coalition is that a lot of these people uh, in the King County Homeless Regional Authority have gone through racial equity training before. Uh-huh. You know, it, so it's it, like, it, what would be different this time, you're saying? Yeah. 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 You know, another startling uh, stat that you you shared with me last time I interviewed you, you said that um, black and brown people make up more of the homeless population, but more white people um, receive housing or, or qualify for temporary housing. And I remember asking you that why, and I think the answer was just kind of like the system 
is, has failed. <laughs> or or yeah. like, or like, yeah, go ahead. I was specifically, uh, specifically speaking about the, uh, enrollment into the CEA or uh-huh. the coordinated entry for all system. Now, as I said before, that is the most robust and, and biggest homeless housing system in the state of Washington, right? It gets the most money. It handles the most people. Um, and the way that you get into that system is you do an assessment through me, right? And the assessments can take between one and two hours to do, uh, based on if you're a single person or if you're a family, a mother of whatever, you know. And so, uh, what I was finding was that, you know, I was seeing a lot of black folks come into the system, right? They were coming to me for assessments and I was enrolling them into the system, uh, more than, much more than white, uh, white folks, right? And so, uh, and, I, and everyone was being enrolled into the system. However, the people who were being housed through this system were predominantly white, or at least more of them, more white folks were being housed than black folks. Mm-hmm. And so we thought that's strange because generally, I mean, as far as my own personal experience of doing assessments on people for two years, uh, generally black folks scored higher on the assessment than white folks did. And in this assessment, the higher you get, which equals the more vulnerabilities you have and the more challenges you have, yeah. you're, you're supposed to be housed first. Because which, in, which, in, in this system, they're housing the po- folks who... It, it's, it's like a triage system, right? Yeah. So you know, to me, this implies that the person processing the application might have a bias. Well, when you have a potentially 23-year-old white girl that just graduated from the University of Washington, you know, so school of social work, uh-huh. who's never smelt a day of homelessness in her life yeah. or his life, uh, it, it's going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and plus, I, I could tell, I mean, being homeless myself, I could tell that there were several questions on that assessment that, you know, the person who wrote that question didn't, didn't know what homelessness was, had, had no clue what it was. And so I, I used to end up, I didn't change the questions, but I would ask the questions in a way that I knew uh, I could get an accurate answer with. Because if I asked the way it was on the, on the assessment, I would not get an accurate answer. I mean, I had people change their answers all the time when I just st- said it a different way, you know. And so, uh, and, and that's, that's really was the cause of that inequity as far as who were, what people were being housed and who, and, and who wasn't being housed. Hmm. That was the cause of it. Okay. Those questions. <laughs> so for the viewers that are out there that are hearing all of this that want to get involved, like what would you say to them? That what would you say to someone who lives in Seattle and they're like, I wanna help help eradicate homelessness. I don't want to just stand on the sidelines. Like what would you say to those people? What can they I, do? I would tell them number one to vote. <laughs> yeah. Um follow your follow the city council's sessions and and follow what they're doing. Uh, you know, get involved in some kind of a group that is able to go and speak up uh, during these uh, S- S- Seattle City Council meetings. Uh, go to Olympia, uh, write your 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 uh, lawmaker, your legislator, uh, whatever district you live in. Find out what your legislative district is and find out who is the politician in Olympia that is over that district and write them an email. Call them. Do yeah. something. You so know? you just like go to the 
city council website and look at their calendar and just show up? Like, what do you what do you mean when you say like, or yeah, I guess you would watch you can watch their live streams and be aware of like what they're talking about. But like, well, the easiest way to do it really is to get on some kind of a not a listserv because that's kind of old school. But uh, you know, I get emails from Shama Sawan all the time. Okay, I get emails from my my district legislator all the time, and so they tell you what's going on. And they tell you what they're doing mm-hmm. now. If and then I've uh, you can join groups like the um, the um, the the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. You know you you, you can join groups like uh, like Skitch, um, the South I think South King County something something. But they deal with homelessness too, and they are always putting out emails as far as what you know what's going on and who they're going to talk to and what meeting is going to happen at the town hall and that kind of thing. So there's lots of ways to get involved. All you've got to do is just, you know, be, yeah, become a part of one of these groups okay. and they will send you emails because they're really busy. They're like, uh, for lack of a better term, they're on top of it, John. <laughs> 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 yeah. So there, there's lots of folks doing a lot of things. Oh, you know. This it's, is a sketch right here. Homeless.info. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of, a lot of groups really trying to make a difference. That's great. So just like get involved with one of these groups. Yeah. Poverty Action Network. They're doing good work too. Okay. Um, so, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. I think it's a really important issue. Um, what, what would you like to accomplish? Like if you could accomplish anything from this interview or for people out there listening to this, like, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish from this? What do you, what is the ultimate message you're trying to get out there right now? The ultimate message is that the organization, this new government entity that I'm working for, the King County Homeless Regional Authority, they work for you. They work for the people, right? And we we pay their taxes. We pay their their salaries. And so, you know, they have to represent what the people want. Mm-hmm. You know, not what they want necessarily, but what the people want. And so the message I would want to get across is Put some pressure on them and other politicians on your on your city your, your uh, a council person and and your state legislator. Uh, put pressure on them to do what you want because they they that's what they're there for, right? That's that's why they're there is to do what we tell them to do. And so so what does that look like? What does putting pressure on them look like? Shit. <laughs> Ask like, Shama Sawant, man. She's a, she's the queen of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Putting pressure, you know, on on lawmakers. I mean, you got to stand up and say something and go to their meetings. You know, yeah. stand up and say stuff and, and and join a group that's doing that, so you're not alone. You know, yeah. It's it's power in numbers, right? Yeah. Like say. if you, so you're saying, if you show up to a meeting by yourself, it's not the same thing as showing up as a part of a committee that's that's there. Or do you show up as one person that represents the committee? Like, how does that work? Does, does all, the whole committee show up together? Like, I don't know. I'm it's, new to this. Yeah, this power of numbers, man. You got to show up with a group. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone gets a chance and to say signs. something. You all bring and signs. signs. And, and all that. Yeah, and get excited, man. Yeah, uh-huh. because that, that, that's what they respond to. Yeah. You know, but mostly, mostly, I mean, it, there's that. Then there's also your personal story. You know, if you have a personal story, like I do, right, uh, uh, just get it out there and say it, you know, and, and, and let people hear it and let that be because what it does is it puts a human face on a tragic situation that people want to ignore. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this on the website here. They have two uh, links, one for implementation and one for governing. And they, they have times of when you can uh, watch the the meetings on Zoom. So what it, is this for the KCHRA? I think so. 
for the regional homeless authority. Is yep. this correct? Yep. Yeah. So I know they have some Zoom meetings on here, previous meetings. So I guess you could if you want to catch up and hear what they've been talking about. Come in here and look at these these videos right here. Here's implementation board meetings and governing committee meetings. I mean, yeah. obviously, this is for my Seattle audience, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, and you could also attend those meetings as well and make a public comment, too. And we've, uh, there's always time for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to, to get involved, for sure. Um, well, Kirk, I want to thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, is there any f uh, final words you'd like to say before we go? No, just thank you, John, for in inviting me here. Uh, I was a little nervous to come here, but uh, I think it went okay. Yeah, and I just, you know, I just wanted to just get out the out the word as far as what the King County Homeless Regional Authority is doing and what we want to do, and how uh, you know folks out there can help us represent them better. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know pretty. I'm, I'm just glad you invited me here and had a good time. You yeah. did a great job sharing all that. I really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks. All right, guys. Till next time.